Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to hear from you. We hear messages all week long, some good, some bad, many of them just from a human nature. And as we gather before you together here on the Lord's Day, we want to hear you speak. We want to hear what you have to say. And so we open our ears now, we open our hearts to receive what you have for us. Please speak in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, come and have your way. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. How many have done a marathon here before? Anyone, anyone run a marathon? You've done a marathon? Okay, so few. Karen, you did one? Oh my goodness, okay. All right, okay, so we've got some marathon runners here. I have not done one. I have no plan to ever. Um, I think you guys are really weird for wanting to do that, but anyways, that's all right. Um, woo, are we good here? A little hot? Turn it down, okay. Are we good now? Still a little, little loud still? Okay, how about that? Is that better? Okay, I'll talk loud too. All right, so well, those who have run a marathon, chances are you didn't wake up that morning and say, you know what, I think I'm going to run a marathon today. Okay, some, maybe someone's saying, well, that's what we did. Well, okay, normal people don't do that, all right? And more than likely, this is, this is probably, a, there's a better chance that no one was halfway through the marathon thinking, wait a second, what am I doing right now? You're running a marathon. And no doubt, when you set out to run a marathon, you had a goal and it was to finish. The Bible says that the Christian life is like a race. It's not like a sprint, though. It's not a 10-second, 100-yard dash. It's like a marathon. In fact, it's probably even more like an Ironman run, a 100-mile run or something like that. The Christian life is a race. It's an endurance race. And God's aim through the book of Hebrews is to give us graciously the joyful courage to continue to endure and follow Jesus all the way to the end. That's the aim. That's God's aim through the book of Hebrews, is to give us not just courage, but joyful courage. Not to sprint, but to endure with Christ all the way to the end. To follow Jesus to the end of our lives, or till he comes back, whichever comes first. He gives us the courage, the joyful courage to do this through trials and setbacks and losses and sickness and health, ongoing struggles against sin. He gives us the the joyful courage to follow Christ through all of this, to endure all the way to the end. This letter was written with with this specific concern in mind. The author wants to urge these people he's, reading, he's writing to 
to follow Jesus, to go with Jesus all the way, to go with him all the way to the end. The original audience was a group of Hellenistic Jews who had converted to Christ. They, they, so they were Greek-speaking Jews had, who had converted to Christ, but shortly after they had believed in Christ, they experienced severe persecution. And on top of that, they had family and friends who suffered tremendously. And on top of that, they began to see certain friends in the church that at least professed to believe what they believed began to walk away from Jesus. And on top of that, they, they experienced what it was like to be marginalized and ostracized in society. And so all of these things were mounting together and these believers were wondering, wait a second, I thought things were supposed to get easier with Jesus. I thought he was going to give me the good life. What's going on? And their faith was beginning to weaken. They had begun to drift from the gospel. That's a key word we're going to see later in the book of Hebrews. They weren't running away from Jesus, but they just began to drift. They just began to drift, right? I mean, wood drifts downstream, right? It just, it just drifts. It just goes with the current. They began to drift from the gospel. They began to lag behind. They, be, they began to grow discouraged. And they were at least giving some evidence that they were reconsidering this faith in Jesus. And they were thinking about turning back to Judaism. So the author has a primary strategy to encourage courageous, joyful endurance with Jesus. He has a primary strategy for these beleaguered, discouraged Christians. And his primary strategy is to lift Jesus higher and higher for them. It's to lift Jesus higher and higher. He doesn't have a weak strategy. He doesn't have a, a strategy of giving them cliches that help for a short time. He doesn't have a, a strategy of pop psychology, look on the bright side of things or anything like that. No, his strategy is very Christ-centered. It's to lift Jesus up higher and higher, to elevate Christ above all of their difficulties so that they see him and endure. This was the medicine they needed to follow Christ through when things were going well and when things were extremely painful and difficult. And this is the antidote that you and I need as well. Friday I was reading, I don't know if you guys are doing... Uh, doing the same page summer reading challenge, but this last Friday in Matthew 20, at the end of the chapter, there are these two blind men that are heckling, G not heckling him, they're yelling to get his attention. They said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And the disciples and, the and some others in the crowd were telling them, be quiet, he doesn't have time for you, just go away. And they were undeterred. It says they cried all the louder, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. And they got his attention. Jesus went over to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And I love their response. Their response was, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And that's my prayer ever since Friday morning. For me, for you, for us, for God's people, is that our eyes would be opened to see Christ in his glory and beauty that he would be elevated before us and we would have eyes to see him. 
So please join me in that prayer this morning for the remainder of our time. It's when the eyes of faith are lifted to see Christ in his rich and full accomplishment on our behalf, this is when we're full of the Spirit. For what does the Holy Spirit fill us with? But Jesus himself, it's the Spirit of Christ. This is when faith soars. And this is when we have the patient, joyful, courageous endurance we need to follow Christ all the way to the end. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I think is basically the overarching message of the book of Hebrews. It comes on the heels of Hebrews 11, which is this chapter chronicling these men and women of faith. At the beginning of chapter 12, it says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run the race that is set before us with endurance. You know what it says next? Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let us run the race that's set before us with endurance, looking to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And so lifting Jesus up, lifting him high in his supremacy is what the book of Hebrews does. And my prayer is, is that you would be stunned with what you have have the gracious privilege of seeing about Christ. That you would be amazed. We've all been at, you know, we've all seen some natural beauty. Maybe just here in Iowa, a beautiful sunset. Sometimes the the, the colors are dazzling, right? There's no color in in the crayon box that matches that color in the sky right? Sometimes you see a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise, or if you, if you stood on the, the, the beach and, the, and seen the Pacific Ocean, like Alyssa and I had the, the joy to do in Hawaii and watch the sunset, or you stand before some towering mountain, when you get a glimpse of glory like that, all of a sudden... Every other care doesn't just go away, right? You still got to get up the next day and go to work. But everything else just seems to fade into the background of glory. What if you saw the one who made all of this with greater sight? Everything else would just fade into the background. And you would actually have the, the, the strength and the courage to get up and responsibly do the things that you need to do. So lifting Jesus up, lifting him high in his supremacy, this is what the book of Hebrews does, and it starts right here in the opening words. The first thing the author wants wants us to know is that Jesus is God's final message. He is God's final word. Look at these opening words, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but... There's a contrast here. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There is a clear contrast of how and through whom God spoke in the past and how and through whom he speaks in these last days. God is a speaking God, right? He spoke through the prophets at many times 
and in many ways, right? Think of all the ways that God spoke to and through the prophets in the Old Testament, right? Think of, I mean, the manifold ways that he did this. He spoke through dreams and visions. He would speak to them and speak through them through dreams and visions. He would speak through strange prophetic acts. I think of someone like Hosea or Ezekiel, who God had them do what we would say is bizarre things to communicate to his people. God spoke through the audible voice, right? He spoke to Moses as a friend speaks face to face. He spoke to Moses through the burning bush. He spoke through an angel of the Lord. He spoke through a still, small voice. And he spoke through Moses on tablets of stone. These are ways that God spoke in times past. I'm not saying that God still can't employ some of these ways that he speaks, but, but in these last days, there is a superior messenger and a superior message. It's Jesus is a superior messenger in that he is not just another prophet. Right? He's not another prophet in the line of Elijah and Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and so forth. He is God's eternal son. Who's God's messenger? And it's a superior message that he brings, which is a message about himself. It says, literally, verse 1 says, in these last days, God has spoken to us in son. So it's not just by his son. It's not just that his son has spoken and we should listen to his words. We should certainly do that. But it is that God has spoken in his son. In other words, Jesus is the message. Jesus is the word of God. And we see this in John 1.1, 1, 1, where John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the message. There is no greater message than Christ. There's no greater word from God than Jesus himself. And this is God's final message. Notice it says, in these last days. When the, when the New Testament uses that phrase, last days, or in the Old Testament as well, it's not talking about the time just before the seven-year tribulation or something like that. I don't think of like the Left Behind book series, Last Days, right? Or it's not, just, it's not talking about just the, the, the few years prior to Jesus coming back. We are in the last days, and we have been in the last days for almost 2,000 years now. The last days refers to the period of time from the resurrection of Christ to the second coming of Christ. So this is God's message in these last days. God has one final message in these last days, and it is Christ. And just... Just think about what this means for us. We can do no better than exalt Jesus. We don't move beyond exalting Christ. And we have no better message for people than to give them Jesus. Right? There's that song. I think Fernando Ortega might have written it. It's been, been sung by others as well. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Not money, not health even, not whatever you, else we may want, sinfully or otherwise. But in the morning when I rise, give 
me Jesus. That's what our hearts long for. He is what our hearts, he is what we long for. This is wonderfully illustrated in Matthew 17. Matthew 17, Jesus took Peter and James and John up on a mountain and uh, says that Jesus was transfigured before their, their eyes. And, um, and then Moses and Elijah showed up. And Jesus started talking with Moses and Elijah. And Peter, of course, you know, loudmouth Peter, he had a great idea. He said, you know, Jesus, it's really good that I'm here. I can do something for you. Let me, why don't I build a tent for you and for Moses and Elijah? And as soon as he's done talking, this shining cloud over shadows him and a voice comes and it's the father and the father says this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased listen to him in other words he's not on par with these two Moses and Elijah this is my son listen to him the eternal son is God's final Word. He is God's final message. Don't be looking for another message that somehow goes beyond Christ. You're looking in vain, or you're going to receive something that's not from God. Jesus is God's final word. And to convince us that God's final word, Jesus, is worth listening to, the author describes him. And It almost doesn't seem fair that he starts the book this way because he just piles glorious truth upon glorious truth upon glorious truth. And I got like 20 minutes to go through all of this. All right, but he describes them in seven ways, all right? So I I got about, did I say 20 minutes? I meant an hour and 20 minutes and I'll be done, okay? Um, No, I'm gonna cruise through this because we're gonna unpack this more in the book of Hebrews. But he, he describes, he describes the son about whom he is God's final message. He's God's final message. He describes him in seven ways, elevating Jesus higher and higher. You know, yesterday I was thinking about um, this phrase in Hebrews 12, looking to Jesus. You know, you and I need more than, we need more than just vague notions about Jesus, right? If I were to say to look, look to Jesus, a good question would be, okay, And what about him am I looking at? What am I looking for? Right? Let's fill in. Who is this Jesus we are looking to? We need more than vague notions. We want to build our lives on more than just vague ideas about Jesus. And we certainly don't want to just fill in our own ideas about Jesus. We want to get it from God's word. And so that's what the author of Hebrews does. He fills in. Who is this glorious Son, elevating Jesus higher and higher in his person and work. Let me, let me just tell you the seven descriptors of Christ, and we're going to go through them one at a time. He describes Jesus as the creator of all things. He describes Jesus as the sustainer of all things. Jesus as the heir of all things. Jesus as the radiance of God's glory. Jesus as the representer of God or the exact imprint of God's nature. He describes Jesus as the purifier of our sins. And he describes Jesus as the ruler who is now seated at God's right hand. 
And I just say, Lord, open our eyes. Let our eyes see. Let our eyes see. Let's go through these one at a time. First, Jesus is the creator of all things. Verse 2 says, through whom he created the world. More literally, it says, through whom he created the ages. He created the ages, not just planet Earth, but he created the ages, meaning all the periods of time and all the things manifested in time. In other words, everything. Everything. Kent Hughes in his um, commentary on Hebrews put it this way. He says, Jesus was the agent in whom and through whom the entire universe of space and time was created. It was through Jesus that everything was made. God spoke, and it was through Christ that everything came to be. This is consistent with the apostolic witness. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Big things, right? Like enormous Mount Everest-sized things on earth and stars and so forth and microscopic things you can't see with the naked eye. He made it all. John 1.3 says this, all things were made through Christ or through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Is that clear enough? He made everything. He's the creator of all things. Now, you might think, okay, yeah, I already know this, yon, 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 but have you thought about the immensity of the universe? Have you thought about it? And Jesus walked the earth, and Peter and John and James and Mary and Martha, these people rubbed shoulders with him. Think about the immensity of the universe. The, the diameter of the solar system, you know how long it is? How big it is? 7.5 billion miles. Okay? Pretty big, right? Which means that at 70 miles an hour, if you were driving a consistent 70 miles an hour and you started at one end of the diameter and wanted to go to the other end, you know how long it would take? 12,231 years. In other words, we would not get there in our lifetime, right? 12,231 years to drive from one end to the other. Oh, and by the way, our solar system is one of 200 billion solar systems in the Milky Way galaxy. Oh, and by the way, the Milky Way galaxy is one of an estimated 100 billion galaxies. I mean, it just boggles our mind. You know, when I, when I think about that, and I think Christ made it all, I think he's really big, and I'm really small. And there's something therapeutic about that. We often think of ourselves as big deals, right? And our lives as a big deal, and, and in some ways it is, but when we see the immensity of the glory and the power of our creator, Jesus Christ, it's very helpful. Here's something else that will blow, boggle your mind. There are an estimated 70 sextillion stars 
What's a sextillion, right? I mean, what's 70 sextillion mean? Well, if you were to take every grain of sand on planet Earth and multiply it by 10, that's about 70 sextillion. And Isaiah 40 says he calls all the hosts out and he knows each one of them by name so that not one of them is lost. Jesus is... He's not the kind of Savior and God you can fold up and put in your back pocket. Right? You cannot put him in a box. He blows through every box you try to put him in. He made the box. Right? He is glorious. Jesus created it all. Psalm 33.9 says, He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Next time it's clear outside at nighttime, look up at the night sky with its trillions of stars. And that it goes on for trillions and trillions and trillions of miles out. And just say, man, you're really big, Jesus. And I'm really small. And I'm glad about it. You see, if we have big problems, we need a big Savior. Right? Do you agree with me? Big problems require a big God and a big Savior. Jesus is the creator of all things. Number two, second, Jesus is the sustainer of all things. Verse three says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Everything exists not only by him, but also through him. Right? The word uphold means to bear up or to keep from falling down. Jesus holds everything up at this very moment. So when you watch the news and, and you know, regardless of which political persuasion you are, this person's going to blow the world up or this person's going to blow the world up, not if Jesus says they won't. Right? Is our faith in him? It is, right? Absolutely. He upholds the universe by the word of his power every moment of every day. If he ceased to exist, then the world would cease to exist. It would fall. And Jesus doesn't hold it up passively like the Greek, Greek mythology figure Atlas who seems to be hunched over with the world on his shoulders. Jesus upholds it actively and dynamically and powerfully and he doesn't break a sweat. Colossians 1.17 says, In him all things hold together, the 70 sextillion stars, and the billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of galaxies. He holds all together in himself. He is the glue that holds it all together. And he's the glue, he's the one that holds your life together. He's the one that holds your life together. He holds your life in his hand. And I think it is, I think it is, it is the, the most devastating thing in the world that many professing Christians live almost their entire adult lives, maybe childhood lives too, anxious and fearful, not knowing that they have a Savior that's holding them, that's holding their life in his hand. You need to know this. 
You need to know this right now. Every breath, right? Every breath, right? I mean, not, not only every day and every hour is a gift, but every breath is a gift from Jesus Christ, right? He sustains you this very moment. You are alive and breathing now because he's giving you life and breath now. And it says that he does this. He upholds the universe. He sustains all things by the word of his power. By the word of his power. God spoke all things into existence through his audible, spoken command. Let there be, you fill in the blank, light, so forth. And he upholds all things by his powerful word of command. A few years ago, it was around Christmas time. And I... I, so, you know, you're thinking about Jesus, the incarnation, the Son of God being born a human being. And, and I must have been reading Hebrews 1, where it says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And I'm thinking, wait a second. Even when he was lying in the manger, the eternal Son of God was upholding the universe by the word of his power. He was holding, he didn't take a day off. He didn't take 30 years off, Right? He was doing it at that very moment, lying in the manger, holding the universe together in himself. He's glorious. He's amazing. I love the words of the last um, verse of In Christ Alone, where it says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. Third, Jesus is the inheritor of all things. Verse two says, whom he appointed heir of all things. He is the one who inherits all things. Kent Hughes, again, in his commentary said, everything in the universe has its purpose and destiny in relation to the heir, Jesus Christ. So it's not only that all things were created by Jesus, it's not only that all things exist through Jesus, but all things exist for Jesus. We exist for him. Colossians 1.16, which I've already quoted, says all things were created through him and for him. For him. You exist for him. The universe exists for him. The stars exist for him. Everything exists for him. He is the one who is the heir of all of this. But there is a particular portion of his inheritance that Jesus has a special concern for, that he treasures above all the rest, right? Everything is his. But there's a particular portion of his inheritance that he treasures. When my dad died... Uh, six years ago, or seven years ago. My siblings and I, my brother, sisters and I, we were at my dad's house. We were kind of going through his stuff in his home and, and deciding what stuff to keep and what stuff to, you know, give away or donate or whatever and what stuff to throw away and all of that and, and who wanted what. And, and, you know, there was a lot of stuff in the house I really didn't care all that much about, I mean, just to be frank. I mean, but there were two things I really wanted. Two things. I wanted his Bible 
I wouldn't have fought my sisters for it, right? Or my brother and sister. I mean, if they really wanted it, I wouldn't have. I maybe would have raced them for it because I can beat them, but I wouldn't have fought. No, I'm joking. Um, I wanted his Bible. It was his, the only Bible I ever saw him read. It had been so tattered and, you know, because of use. And I wanted this plaque that hung in our kitchen my entire childhood. It said the, the DeGroat family, and then it had a portion of Joshua 24, 15. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Those are the only two things I wanted in his house. That's, that's really it. Thankfully, no one had a problem with that at all. I, I got it, all right? Well, Jesus has a particular concern for part of the inheritance that belongs to him. And it's his people. It's the souls. It's the, it's the, the beloved bride for whom he died. All things are his. All the universes, all the universe, everything belongs to him. All the nations are his, right? Psalm 2, ask and I will give the nations as your inheritance. It all belongs to him. But of all of it, he loves his bride most. He treasures his people most. Ephesians 1, verse 18, it's, this is Paul praying for the people of Ephesus, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened, that you would know the hope to which you've been called. And then the second part thing he prays for is that you would know the glorious riches of his inheritance in the saints. Christ has an inheritance. And the choicest part is his people. It's his beloved people for whom he shed his blood. He is the heir of all things, but he treasures his people the most. And amazingly, amazingly, because we are adopted sons and daughters, Romans 8 says this, that we are heirs of God and stunningly fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ of all things. It's amazing. I mean, there's no way to wrap your mind. We shouldn't even try. We should, just, we should just lift our hands up and say, thank you and amen, right? I'll take it. Fourth, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. I'm going to cruise through this, okay? Verse 3 says he's the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus does not reflect the glory of God. He radiates the glory of God. And there's a vast difference between the two. Right? The moon reflects sun. The moon reflects light. The sun radiates light. Right? And the light is, comes from the sun. The sun is the source of the light. Jesus radiates the glory of God. You and I might reflect it. Jesus radiates it. He's part of it. It is his glory too. There are a couple of times the curtain is pulled back and we get a glimpse of the uncreated glory of God shining through Jesus. And I mentioned one earlier, Matthew 17, Mount of Transfiguration. Could you imagine being there? Mount of Transfiguration, it says that he was transfigured before their, their eyes and his face shone like the sun. The, 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 the version, the, the way that Mark tells it is that his clothes were, it's like they were bleached brighter than any human being could ever bleach them. 
He was glorified before them. We also see in Acts chapter 9, when Saul is on the road to Damascus, breathing out murderous threats to God's people and wanting to destroy the church and the testimony of Jesus, that Christ appeared to him, and in an instant, Saul was blinded by the light. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the outshining, if you will, of the glory of God. Jesus is glorious beyond measure. Number five, Jesus is the representative of the nature of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. Verse three says, the words exact imprint speak of something like a signet ring. Right, which when pressed on soft wax puts the exact imprint of the king's authenticating mark. The point is that Jesus perfectly represents the Father. Jesus perfectly represents God. In John chapter 1 it says, no one has ever seen God, but, but, but the true God, his only begotten Son, has made him known, has revealed him, has disclosed him. There's no discord between the Father and the Son. There's no Old Testament God who seems to wake up on the wrong side of the bed often and just wipe people out. And the New Testament God who's nice and friendly and couldn't hurt a fly is Jesus. That's just not the way it is. For one, Jesus is the, the God of the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus shows us clearly. He represents perfectly the nature and character of God. So much so that he says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So when we see Jesus blessing little children, bringing them to himself and hugging them and embracing them, and we see God. That's God. And when we see Jesus making a whip of cords and with anger, driving out the money changers in the temple. We see the Father. We see the Father. When we see Jesus weeping with Mary because Lazarus, her brother, died, we see the Father. And when we see Jesus pronouncing judgment on the Pharisees, we see God the Father. When we see Jesus or hear Jesus speak of the eternal joys of heaven, we hear the Father. When we hear him speak of the eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell, we hear the Father. And of course, Christ's chief purpose in coming to earth was to seek and save lost sinners. And this shows us the nature of God's love and grace unlike anything else. Number six, Jesus is the purifier of our sins. Verse three says, after making purification for our sins, he sat down. This supreme, glorious Lord who made everything, sustains everything, for whom all things exist, he came to die for us. He came to die for us. He came to pay for our sins with his own blood. He made purification for our sins. And the emphasis 
in this verse or this portion of verse 3 is on the second part where it says after making purification of sins, what did he do? He sat down. He sat down. Not because he was tired, not because he had a long day's work and just needed to rest a bit. He sat down because his work was done. His work of atoning for sin was complete. It was done. We're going to discover as we go through the book of Hebrews, this is one of, one of the big theme, themes, the, 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 high priest, the high priestly work of Christ. Under the old covenant, the, the, the priests and the high priests, their work continued day after day after day after day, year after year. There were daily sacrifices and offerings. There was the yearly sacrifice and offering on the Day of Atonement. And their work never ended. It never took care of sin. Jesus offered up himself once, and he sat down. Reed mentioned this earlier. But these images that we have in the Old Testament, that he's buried our sins in the deepest sea. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. The final words of Jesus, it is finished. It is finished. He has taken away our sins. Number seven, Jesus is the ruler at God's right hand. Jesus sat down after he made purification of sins, and where did he sit? At the right hand of the majesty on high. At God's right hand. Made purification for sins through his death on the cross, but then he rose, then he ascended to the place of ruling exaltation. He sits at the place of highest honor in all the universe. This is one reason why the most basic and earliest Christian confession was Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Paul says, he humbled himself even to death on the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him, and given him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father as the Lord. Psalm 110 which is quoted often in the book of Hebrews, starts off with the words, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make every enemy your footstool. Jesus is sitting there, ruling and reigning, and he'll come back again. But wonder of wonders, I'm going to close with this, wonder of wonders, it is here, at the Father's right hand, we see the work of Jesus presently for his people, often overlooked and completely forgotten about, or some maybe haven't even heard of it. It is at the Father's right hand this moment and perpetually that Jesus prays for us, intercedes for his people. Hebrews 7.25, it says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. He ever lives. That's what he's always doing. 
is making intercession for his people. Romans 8.34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Christ, right? Looking to Jesus, not in some haphazard way, but I think the New American Standard says, fixing our eyes on Christ. Not a glance, fixing our eyes like a laser beam on him. We don't want to live with some vague notion that Jesus is just the supremely nice person in the universe. That doesn't help at all. He is the eternal son who created all things, sustains all things, is the heir of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature, the once-for-all purifier of sins, and the exalted king who prays for us. Let's run with endurance, fixing our eyes on this Jesus. Let's pray.